Welcome everybody, this is Robin Harford from eatweeds.co.uk and today I am here with Mark Nesbitt. Mark, I think it's best if you tell us about yourself. I'm very excited to have you on. I know you're a senior research leader at Kew, but in what department? <laughs> I look after the Economic Botany Collection, which is a sense of collection of useful plants and things made from useful plants from ancient Egypt to, to current times. And my job is both to care for that collection, but more especially to kind of generate research in, into useful plants. Wonderful. So you mentioned economic botany, ethnobotany. Did one come before the other? Did one come later? What's the history, the story of what I understand is ethnobotany, even though there is the Society of Economic Botany. Uh, these, these terms that we can also throw biocultural into the mix as well, and they do reflect uh, different emphases through times. Economic botany, which you can trace back to various points, but probably really to the 18th century, that, that the clue is perhaps in, in that first word, but it did mean something slightly different in, in the 19th century. It meant more practical or, or useful. But nonetheless, the, the, the thought there was very much what can plants do for us? Whereas ethnobotany, I think, gives a, a more, it gives both a more equal emphasis both to the plants and to the people who are absolutely the core of ethnobotany. And it also symbolises the fact that we, we see plants as having a sort of wider role in society than purely economic in modern terms. One of the reasons we've hung on to the term economic botany for the collection at Kew is that it was the world's first museum of economic botany. So there's a kind of historical resonance there. But ethnobotany is probably the more familiar term to most people these days. It's my understanding that Richard Evans Schultz is considered the father of modern ethnobotany. Is that true? And if so, who was he? And why was he important compared to other plant hunters? or researchers of past? I think there's a complicated answer to that. It's absolutely true. He's one of the fathers of modern ethnobotany. You know, his uh, fantastic work uh, starting in the 1940s in South America, things like wild rubber, really set very high scientific studies for that work, you know, collecting herbarium specimens, publishing everything really well, works very foundational for the whole work that's going on now. For example, some own worker in the Amazon is drawing on sources, publications and specimens. At the same time, there is a reading of Schultz's work today that I'm less comfortable with. There is a kind of narrative about the, the lone ethnobotanist in the field, which is absolutely not how we work today. There's a narrative, you know, he was obviously fascinated by psychoactive uh, substances, and those are a really important element of life, you know, especially where he was working in, in the Amazon. But that's not the, the dominant aspect of ethnobotany today. And it, it can sometimes guide people perhaps into a quite limited understanding about what ethnobotany is about. I'm totally with you on that one because it's my experience, particularly certain organisations in America are really focusing on the kind of the psychoactive uses of various plants and that's just one small cultural use within a far greater context. That's important. People I know go, ethnobotany, right, shorties, oh, that's about tripping out in the Amazon. It's like, no, it's not. And I actually get quite upset over that. It belittles a culture. To reduce a culture to a psychoactive substance is, is, is deeply crass, actually. 
And I do feel there's an element of self-indulgence often uh, amongst the, some of these researchers and from other researchers an element of an agenda that isn't asking open questions but is driven by you know, particular views on, on drugs. Yeah. And then, of course, there's then the whole controversy around the use of things like tourism. Is that cultural appropriation or is it bringing income into communities? Uh, big unresolved questions. So there's ethnobotany. Someone's jazzed up. They really are into ethnobotany. Where do they go and get properly trained uh, with all the qualifications and the academic research, etc.? I think the thing to say about ethnobotany is that like a lot of these modern and very interdisciplinary fields, it, it's very flexible. I, I would say there is there's a core aim at the centre of ethnobotany, which is about reconciling uh, people and, and plants or biodiversity and livelihoods. But quantitative methodology has evolved in the last 20 or 30 years, which you know, a lot of us uh, use. But the framework for that you know, could sit in an ecology department, a botany department, anthropology department, perhaps even a history department in, in many cases. So you, you can take ethnobotany in lots of different directions. One of the sort of messages to people interested in going further into that field is there are relatively few jobs for ethnobotanists, but a very large number of jobs where ethnobotany as a technical skill is super useful in, in doing them. So this question quite often comes up in sort of Facebook groups and somewhere where can I study uh, ethnobotany? And the MSC at Kent you know, started 20 years ago as a collaboration between two very well-known ethnobotanists, uh, Roy Ellen, an anthropologist working in Indonesia, and Gillian Prance, when the director of Q, who works in the uh, Amazon, gives you that very concentrated one year half uh, training in context, understanding what ethnobotany sits and things like environmental anthropology, ethics, and all of those policies like conventional and biological diversity, and methodology. The methodology, which is a repeatable methodology, which means different people can do the same kind of study in different communities and compare results, uh, which is a really exciting development in ethnobotany. So you get all of that packed into one year together with six months fieldwork to actually put into practice what you've learned. But those technical skills have, of course, been published. There's some really great handbooks on ethnobotany by people like Gary Martin, Tony Cunningham. Uh, if you're in the right department, the right supervisor, joining in the right networks, going to the right meetings, you can, of course, learn these skills of ethnobotany in quite a few different settings. I had someone literally just yesterday, she said she was looking for a mentor either in foraging, botany or ethnobotany. She's already done an MSc in environmental science and something else, I can't remember. And she didn't want to do the Kent route. Is there any other route not to become qualified officially, but are there courses? What would be your advice for people who want to become competent and proficient in ethnobotany without necessarily going the full academic route? Or is that even possible? <laughs> Learning through doing is, is a really good route. And I think a, a some broader piece of advice, which I often end up giving to people on the Kent Masters course as well, is about having a specific area of focus. It, it's, it's quite hard to develop yourself if you have a broad, very broad 
fuzzy interest in, in plants and people. It's hard to give advice on where to go, what kind of work you might do, what kind of reading you should be doing. If your interest is in conservation of Chinese medicinal plants being imported from the Himalayas, then it's much more straightforward to think about where what is your next step going to be to develop that interest? I think the question of short courses is an interesting one. We're just doing a review at the moment at Kew of, uh, of our education provision. And master's degrees will always be very important for us. We are also thinking about widening the scope of short courses. Now, there is an opportunity to give those sort of basic tools introductions of context in a, a shorter period of time. We do that for things like tropical plant identification. There's no reason why we shouldn't be doing that for ethnobotany too. It was actually one of the, the reasons for, for me getting you on the call because it seems, certainly in my networks, that there's a number of people, not everybody, but certainly a, a number of people who are fascinated by the whole science of ethnobotany and they kind of we're kind of floundering because it's like well where do we go you know if you don't can't do the msc then short introductory courses into the methodology like you say personally i think would be pretty pretty important which then fed into the question that i asked you specifically with kind of the growth of citizen scientists which some people can't stand other people really embrace and where would is there is there a place for such a thing as citizen ethnobotanists well absolutely and i mean what i love about the term citizen science is a bit of a buzzword and it's great for projects and so on for instance mm-hmm. citizen science but of course if you look at uh, natural history uh, and folklore in most countries as one example citizen science has been absolutely at the heart of that local natural history societies have been the backbone of biodiversity research in, in the uk what 200 years or so and if you look at for example, Roy Vickery's uh, wonderful books on, on mm. folklore of his plants. Yeah. Um, where does the raw material come from? It comes from letters that people write to him. It comes from you know, stories collected by folklorists, citizen scientists, back in, in the 19th century. So I think there absolutely uh, is a role, but there are perhaps some lessons to learn from that earlier work. But those citizen scientists in natural history didn't do it by themselves. They didn't do it in isolation. They formed groups together. They formed these wonderful natural history societies that still exist everywhere. And so I think the, the question is, where is that community going to form? And of course, part of that community has been forming on areas like Facebook and social media. So someone is fascinated with plants particularly the ethnobotanical uses which from my understanding covers all the uses that a plant has served within human culture and the relationship around those uses so someone goes abroad they find someone in a forest and they want to learn about the forest medicine and they go out for a few days or a couple of weeks with that person who happens to be a, a local from a village. They're not a scientist, they just know the plants because they are part of their life. And they note down all the uses that the person's telling them. One of the things that I've been discussing with ethnobiologist friends in America 
is the importance of honouring the local people and where the knowledge comes from. So we're covering things like intellectual property rights and potentially cultural appropriation. So where's, where are we at with all that at the moment? What, uh, what, what, would you, what would be your advice to someone who goes, because I've got loads of notebooks in my times abroad and people have said to me continually, well, why haven't you published any of that information? I go, well, it's actually not ethically cool to be doing it because one, to actually go back and give full credit to the, to the people that I learnt from would require other journeys and also trying to find them again. So what would be your advice? Yeah, so I think you're, you're absolutely right. And there's, I guess, a, a fine line between as an individual chatting to people about plants, which is a, a pretty good thing and warmly to be encouraged, yeah. um, and doing what we might call research, which is perhaps you know, at the core of research is the idea of dissemination and of sharing results. Obviously, the, the legal and intellectual property position is, is complicated. You know, Q, we, we hire full-time people to uh, work purely on those uh, aspects. But the principles are very clear. And I think you know, the principles are set out now around things like benefit sharing and prior informed consent. But I would summarize those all in one word. It's about collaboration. And so the idea that we, would, or any researcher now, would simply go off and do research somewhere is really around about 30 years uh, out of date. The most ethnobotanical field work these days, I think we first say, is probably initiated by the communities where that work is being done uh, and the uh, agenda, the dissemination results, the way that they're used, the way that the benefits flow back into those communities. So I think that's one of the differences you could say to 19th century economic botany, it was extractive. Yeah. It was about taking plants and information elsewhere for our benefit. One day ethnobotany, the focus is always on the community that you're working in. How can the techniques and so on that we have be shared? and benefit uh, them. So if we're doing collaboration, then all of these things are worked out through, through joint uh, discussions, and those would, you've got budget time for those to take place. But if the agenda is being led by where you're working, you know, the, the conflicts are going to be less because you, you, you're clearly working to their agenda. So just to feed back to people looking for courses, I've come across some courses claiming to be uh, level four accredited programs in ethnobotany under the guise of the Institute of Outdoor Learning. What's your feelings on those kinds of courses? Are they valid or are they just kind of riding on the bandwagon? I'll have to look up those courses. I don't know them, but I do sometimes make suggestions to people who are looking uh, you know, for a different route or for a taster or for field skills. And there are quite a few field courses around. Um, and what I always look for there is, do the people leading these courses have you know, PhDs or equivalent qualifications in the subject? What does the, the modules look like? Do they include intellectual property, conventional biological diversity? So modern quantitative methodologies, how, how do you do surveys? And there are some really great courses, particularly in Latin America, that do meet those criteria. And an ideal world looking for courses that are coming out of a reputable institution. But it's important to say that there are also individuals running really good courses too. So where do you see 
the future of ethnobotany. Some people have said to me, well, you know, really, what's so relevant about it? Surely it's just all been done. It's all, everything's been bagged and tagged. What is the relevance of ethnobotany in the modern world? Or are we all just living in the past? <laughs> well, it's interesting you asked that question right, right at the moment in the middle of the COVID pandemic, which I think is, is for all sorts of reasons, including this incredible silence that we suddenly have in, in London, where I, I'm living and working, has, has attuned people to thinking more about our relationship with the natural world and also about how our disruption of the natural world, although it may sometimes have short economic benefits, can have longer term perturbations. Or, or really bad effects for our own uh, future. And so I'd argue that ethnobotany is probably more, more relevant than ever. And in terms of where those future directions, one is actually the United Kingdom itself. It's one of those subjects, it's a bit like anthropology, but tended to look you know, to the other, to look you know, yeah, to the tropics. Sure. Um, and the work, particularly of Gabrielle Hatfield, some of her wonderful books, has really redirected attention to, to the wealth of what we have here, both you know, amongst people still around to remember days before the National Health Service, when access to medicines was really poor, the evolution of new knowledge, the influence of uh, you know, new diaspora communities uh, in the United Kingdom as a really rich area for work overseas. I think there was a really interesting time when some of these messages around sustainable forestry, for example, have been taken on a high international level as our international legislation controlling these. But making these actually work on the ground, making sure communities are involved, communities benefit, that's above all where, where the ethnobotanist can bring together those techniques, draw on ecology, draw on anthropology, uh, you know, draw on quite wide fields. Uh, can be really relevant. People have often said to me, oh, well, we've, we've lost our indigenous knowledge. And I've kind of said, well, we, yeah, we kind of lost it possibly with the pigs, but we have cultures like the Roma. Is, from my experience, they're, they're very uh, quite closed to outsiders with their plant knowledge. I just wondered if there were any projects that you know of that have managed to build bridges into those communities. So before their elder people start passing on, that knowledge can be recorded and documented. Is there such a thing? That's a good question. I think first it's important to say that knowledge is not static and new knowledge is evolving across the whole foraging movement that's seen a big boost this year. Sometimes it comes under attack, you know, it's accused of being unsustainable. Uh, that's where real on-the-ground studies could be really valid. I think on, on Roma culture, perhaps a, a subject for another one of your podcasts would be Sarah Edwards, who has a, a PhD in, in ethnobotany. She did her fieldwork in Northern Australia. Australia, but she has a traveller heritage uh, herself, and I know she's been developing quite detailed conversations with uh, Roma communities around ethnobotany. And I think that's a really good example of the research agenda being set within a community rather than outside the community. Most of the audience that listen to this podcast, often they're beginners, they're, they're very excited about plants and culture say someone is going right I want to start a project what would be your advice for someone where they are not flying away somewhere but actually on the ground in their local community 
what would be your advice for them to start recording knowledge? I would start then, if you like, more wider by doing a bit of reading beforehand. So look for those books by people like Miguel Alexiades, Gary Martin, Tony Cunningham, and some of those you can buy as e-books these days. I think the most is uh, still in print. Rather than leaping into research, it's, it's worth just stepping back, perhaps reading one or two of those books of people like Mark Plotkin writing about the uh, Amazon as, as well, Sorter's work too. So a little bit of context first. Um, and what you will find in, in books like Ethnobotnia Methods Manual, Gary's book, really quite clearly set up methodologies on, on how to do this kind of thing, how to interview people. There's simple techniques around open questions, for example, techniques that produce data tables that you can show for other people. And then, again, thinking about networks is there a foragers group in your area can you create such a group you know talk to people who are doing commercial foraging as well but also then kind of at the heart of research if you like at the heart of what we do is is asking questions and that's what drives research for it leads to really exciting research so what are the problems in your area or what are the opportunities in your area? Are there wild plants that could be encouraged, for example, if you're thinking about uh, uh, foraging? But all of that comes around through networking and talking to people. And the, the other piece of advice is around going to conferences and, and going to meetings. So I often advise students to you know, just do some simple Google searches around keywords that they're interested in. I think meetings like the Society of Economic Botany, which is what's going to be in Jamaica yeah. this year, should be there next year, are a very good opportunity for people at all stages in the field. And societies are very open and not at all limited people in academic jobs uh, to see what what people are doing. And of course, this is the way the research works. So it's not a lone scientist enterprise. Uh, it's about you know, learning tricks from, from other people. Find out you know, what's an important question in France or Belgium could just as well be an important question in Britain as well. You brought up the Society of Economic Botany, which I'm a member of and have been for a number of years, which I find absolutely vital, really, because of the wealth of research papers that I have access to. So tell us a little bit more about the Society of Economic Botany and why should people join? For me, it's really important, but I don't know many people in my network who either have heard of it or have even joined it. Actually, one of the questions that does come up from time to time is, should we be changing our name? It's a complicated question because the scope of the society is around a very broad view of ethnobotany. It includes people working archaeology, for example, and the history of plants, as I used to do myself. People working on novel crops, orphan crops, plant genetic resources, all of this kind of thing. And we really uh, value that breadth. But I think it is the closest to a professional society that we uh, have for ethnobotany. Uh, Economic botany, as you do, I think it's one of the very, I I don't get it in print anymore, and I regret that. I get free access from the very few academic journals that anyone interested in plants could actually read from beginning to end and actually really enjoy reading. I agree. Um, 
And if you do join, you get no audiences in 1951 uh, onwards. The annual meeting, it, I think it's a notably friendly meeting. At the last meeting, I was meeting you know, people who were coming to ethnobotany for the first time, looking for resources, and there's some great resources and loads of videos on the uh, website, for example, if you've become a member, 200 videos for teaching. I think one of our questions is how can we be a more international society? And it is an international society. It's, it's always had 50, 60, 70 UK members. And in the past, we used to meet more on a regional basis. I remember meeting with Gillian Prance and his director of Q, hosted such a gathering in, in his house at Q back in, must have been in the 80s. And that's something we need to return to. But one change that we have made is we now do rotate those annual meetings. So typically one will be in the United States and then the following year will be in another part of the world. So anyone listening to this who wants to follow up on what Mark has suggested, either with the books or with the various organisations like Kent University, there will be links in the show notes. So you just need to visit eatweeds.co.uk and click on the podcast link and the share of the episode will be there for you to explore further. Mark, thank you for your time. I know that we're, we're cutting into it and I just wanted to ask one more question and it became a personal question. So a few years yeah. ago, my academic botanist and ethnobotanist friend said Robin you're an ethnobotanist and I was going well no I'm not an ethnobotanist because I don't follow rigorously the methodology and they said yes but your research goes really deep and it was like well okay so for a very short while I did use that tag but I became very very uncomfortable using it because I don't have I haven't done the MSc course so What's the boundary? Because I know some people in the community are starting to call themselves ethnobotanists without having done Kent. Is that acceptable? Uh-huh. So the question comes up quite a lot, particularly from perhaps early career researchers who have invested in a master's and a PhD, and for whom you know that term, the, the word ethnobotanist is really quite um, important. I, I'm not sure. It's, um, ethnobotany, as I said before, it is this very new, very interdisciplinary, very community-based, you know, community-orientated field. And so setting strict boundaries doesn't sit well with that. I would say perhaps the sort of central aspects I would for in someone who describes themselves as ethnobotanist. And just like you, I have the same doubts myself as to whether that's the right word for what I do, is, is perhaps a, a, a central commitment to the ethical aspects. And if, if I don't see those, then I, I really would, would raise questions. So there is a community-based is it prior informed consent? Is it benefit sharing? Is it capacity building? And in an ideal world, there'd be no ethnobotanists jet setting off to other places because every place would have a capacity to do that work in itself. So I think the ethical aspects sit at the, the heart of ethnobotany. And if you sign up to those, then by all means call yourself an ethnobotanist. It's a funny one because it's a bit like herbalism. There are folk herbalists like the marvellous Christopher Headley. And then there are herb, medical herbalists. So the medical herbalists have done all the, the academics and got the qualifications. And the folk herbalists haven't. But what they have is decades and decades of experience of what I call embodied learning. So they have worked 
regularly every day with plants in a medicinal context so it, it kind of borders into that and I suppose at the end of the day for anyone who's listening who, who is wanting to call themselves an ethnobotanist one listen to what Mark just said and two can you genuinely hand on heart sit with yourself and know that you're not basically bullshitting people I quite like your distinction between the idea of being an ethnobotanist and the idea of being someone who does botanical research, which is a somehow more modest and realistic claim, and I think one that I'd be happy to sign up to. So it's been wonderful having you on, Mark. I really appreciate it. I know you know your queue, you're inundated with work, even with lockdown. So many, many thanks for coming on. That's very good. Thought-provoking questions. <laughs>